So um, the first 14 verses of John chapter 21, let's uh, read them together. John 21 verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of your fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then if I may, just a couple of verses from Acts chapter 1. So this would be the natural next step as we come to the end of John's gospel. And we're moving to Luke and his account of what happened next. And he says in verse one of Acts one, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to his disciples he had chosen, after his sufferings he showed himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Just verse 3 one more time. After his suffering he showed himself, emphasis on the showed, to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and then he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. David Woods, uh, in the Lord, on the Lord's Day before last, as we came to the end of chapter 20, um, really said that it seemed like at the end of chapter 20, John had concluded his gospel um, and giving the punchline as to why he'd written it. And somehow chapter 21 seems a little bit of an annex to it. And having um, considered that myself, not something I'd really thought of before, I think it's right. It does seem like it's a bolt-on kind of add, add on to um, what John's testimony had been all about so far. So chapter 21 is about the catch of fish. It's about breakfast on the beach. It's about Peter's reinstatement and uh, his commission. 
and there is a, a kind of element of prophecy as well in in terms of uh, the sufferings that some of the disciples would go through on account of the commitment to the Lord Jesus so why would John include this as a as a separate annex but John's gospel is distinct from the other three in many ways not least because it doesn't present itself as an exhaustive chronological narrative of the life and times of Jesus Christ. As we've said all along, John selects certain key elements of his experiences with the Lord and uses them to present them in support of his case. Chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we have life in his name. I think seeing John's gospel in this light may help resolve some of the apparent inconsistencies across the gospels that Ian was alluding to a couple of weeks ago. The gospel writers are telling the same story but from different perspectives or vantage points and we what we get from these first four books of the New Testament is a multifaceted gem, perfect in its construction and as full, a, as, full as a revelation um, of what the gracious Holy Spirit in his wisdom prescribed for our needs. By these delightful accounts, we know absolutely everything we need to know this side of eternity. It's just brilliant when you see the four gospels as um, a gem uh, with different facets, different perspectives as you look on it from, from the author's different viewpoints. But as we consider if you like the John facet of this gem, what is it that's particularly special about John's take on the life and times of the Lord Jesus, the way John presents it? And I would say it's intimacy. He brings a level of intimate detail that we don't get from the other accounts. And I think this third appearing of the risen Lord Jesus is another one of those precious insights into the intimacy some of the disciples were privileged to have post-resurrection. I've enjoyed, bear with me on this one, but I've enjoyed, enjoyed the consideration of the notion that the short time between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and Pentecost was a kind of pregnant pause. By that I mean it was a, a time of the, uh, uh, before the imminent fulfillment of pending promises. So kind of um, full of potential, but there was an essential waiting point. And it, it, um, it leaves us with a, a deep sense of anticipation. So for John and his friends, this was a unique time of waiting and watching as the clock of the divine timetable, we've made that reference earlier as well. So he's kind of waiting for, um, God's divine timetable clock to complete its chimes, uh, ready for the really the next phase in the outworking of God's plan. So my answer to the question, why did John include chapter 21, is having completed his gospel testimony, as an annex to it, he gives us a, another precious insight in just, into just one of those appearings that the Lord Jesus made during the pregnant pause between his resurrection and his formal essential ascension that Luke describes in chapter one of Acts. So Luke described how Jesus uh, revealed himself and appeared. And I just think John 
having finished his gospel, he's saying, oh, by the way, here's another one of those intimate encounters we were privileged to have with the Lord Jesus. So for the next couple of weeks, that's, uh, well, the next week, uh, today and, and Lord's Day, we get the delightful opportunity to immerse ourselves into one of those appearances that occurred um, pre-Pentecost during this time of what I'm going to call the, the pregnant pause. But before we go there, I'd just like to flag that there's an additional important thing that chapter 21 brings to us. And I am trespassing a little bit beyond verse 14. Um, and that is the direct declaration that the author and the hitherto unidentified disciple who Jesus loved is actually the same person. So if you go to 21 verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who heard, who leaned back against Jesus at the upper at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So in those two verses, the author of John's gospel is identifying himself as the one he's been up until now referring to as the disciple who Jesus loved. I think that's a key point. Now, although John doesn't claim authorship directly in his gospel, and actually he doesn't claim authorship in his three letters either, but scholars over the centuries have been pretty much united that the similarities in the style of the gospel of John, the three letters, and also the book of Re Revelation, uh, where John does um, declare himself to be the author, they make a compelling case that all four books are indeed the work of the Apostle John. And I believe that that's a good enough um, statement for over the, that's kind of um, passed the test of time over the centuries for us to be absolutely confident that John is indeed the disciple who Jesus loved. And I know we kind of assume that, but I, I um, kind of found it really helpful to just uh, really as a consequence of what Ian had said, um, does it pass the um, the scrutiny. You now, if you kind of look at the, the four writings together, um, the letters, Revelation, um, sorry, the five writings together in the gospel, does it support the idea that they, um, the disciple who Jesus loved is indeed uh, the Apostle John? So basically, I'm coming to the same conclusion as Ian, that yes, indeed, John is the disciple who Jesus loved. What a lovely expression for him to reserve for himself. There's a certain humility about it, not wanting to draw attention to himself, but there's also a sense of deep privilege in knowing that he was a disciple who Jesus loved. It's an aspiration for us to, to go there ourselves. So back to the pregnant pause, what was going on here? It seems like to me in chapter, in the first half of chapter 21, there's a, there's a solution here which is breakfast with the Lord, and it's the solution to a problem. So kind of a bit of a back to front thing here, but what problem does breakfast with the Lord um, become a solution to? I put it to you that the disciples' problem was bewildering circumstances and a lack of clear direction from God. 
you know, they'd seen the Lord um, without doubt twice already, at least. And um, but they were in this situation where it was a, a, a time of change. Um, not absolutely clear what would happen immediately next. So quite bewildering circumstances and no clear direction. It seemed that the Lord, the Lord Jesus himself kept coming and going and wasn't necessarily with them all day, every day as he had been. You know, that can be familiar territory, I think, for us. Perhaps sometimes um, it feels as though uh, our everyday experience is like this. We feel unsure, maybe we're lacking in direction, we feel unsure what the Lord wants us to do. And there's the problem and the solution is a meal with the Lord. Better still, breakfast with him every day. Spending time with him, enjoying fellowship with him, enjoying the nourishment of his word. It takes me to a very familiar verse, Revelation 3, verse 20. And it seems to describe the demeanor of the Lord Jesus in the context of wanting an intimate time of fellowship with us, if you like, breakfast with us. Here I am, Revelation 3, verse 20, or in old, in old English, behold, exclamation mark. And I like to think of behold, meaning uh, allow me to arrest your attention. So the Lord Jesus is saying, here I am, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That verse is so often used in, in the context of gospel, but in, in terms of salvation. But actually, that's not its context. It, its context is a desire that the Lord Jesus has for intimate fellowship with people who are already his disciples. And maybe that's the, um, the verse that should kind of be the banner over John 21, the first half of it. That breakfast with the, with the Lord Jesus is the solution to a lack of direction and us knowing not where to go next. Verse three, Peter's statement, I'm going fishing. Some have said this is a bit sinister and is evidence of Peter having turned his back on the Lord and his faith. Seems somehow unlikely to me, given Peter's multiple encounters with the risen Lord Jesus, probably within the last seven to ten days. Why, um, having seen the Lord, having been invited to even touch him, uh, would he suddenly turn his back on the Lord? And we'll get to more of that as we go into the second half of the chapter. But my inclination is to think that in the absence of any specific instructions, that's the reason for our pregnant pause, Peter can't be doing with being idle. He's not that kind of person. So he just goes back to work and his, free, his six friends join him for the same reason. That said, it's not necessarily an entirely positive thing. This notion of a present, of a present sorry, a pregnant pause is in stark contrast to how the disciples were post-Pentecost. The presence of the Holy Spirit changed everything. They weren't kind of wondering what to do next in the Acts, but the Holy Spirit came and he gave energy, confidence, courage, direction. 
It was just a matter of waiting for God's timing. But, you know, waiting is uh, an important part of our spiritual development. As mature Christians, we find ourselves often waiting uh, on the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The Hebrew word for wait brings with it the thought of weaving together to make cloth. I love the thought that while we wait, God is weaving. <laughs> uh, he's weaving together maybe circumstances, um, other things that are necessary that will lead to the best possible outcome. So if we um, feel ourselves perhaps in a bit of a, some, somehow in a pregnant pause and we're, we know there's great potential around the corner and we're waiting for direction to know what happens next, um, then let's be positive about that and enjoy the thought that while we are waiting for clear instruction, God is working and bringing circumstances together. First, uh, still in verse three, they, they fished all night, but they caught nothing. It's just a really simple message, isn't it? When we, when we do things under our own steam and in our own um, direction, then it's going to be fruitless. And maybe I'm taking that little expression a little bit out of context, but I do think there's a valid lesson for us to, to learn there. If we kind of somehow get a little bit restless and, and stop waiting on the Lord and take the initiative ourselves, it will be fruitless. What happens next? Then the Lord appears on the scene. And I love his question. He says, friends, haven't you any fish? Literally, your Bible might say, children, haven't you any fish? I'd like to think of it, hey boys, haven't you any fish? The, there's a, a very precious, loving familiarity about the tone. And I, I'd even dare to say humour. Put yourself in the, in the situation. The Lord Jesus himself has fish and he's already on with the cooking. And I can just see him calling in the distance, hey boys, haven't you any fish? Throw your net on the other side. And then there's this deja vu for John as he sees instantly a great catch of fish and it takes him back to his call that we read about back in Luke chapter 5 and John exclaims Peter it's the Lord and then Peter um, that's who I've been waiting for he leaps out into the waves and strikes out for the Lord the only way he knew how of course he hadn't abandoned his faith or the Lord his reaction would not have been to leap out of the boat and run to the Lord um, once they'd realised who it was. So what about the, the deja vu, this um, kind of dawning on, on John that well, we've been here before, miraculous catch of fish. I'd like to set us some homework meditation and it's to contrast Luke chapter 2 with John chapter 21. Luke, sorry, Luke chapter 5. That's the uh, first miraculous catch of fish. Some say it's even the same beach. So same beach, same boat, same people, more or less, and similar circumstances. But I, I just enjoy the meditation. There's some lovely similarities, but there's some interesting contrasts as well. In Luke 5, the Lord was on board the boat. In John 21, he was on the beach. 
in Luke 5, there were many more fish, two boatloads actually, and the nets were full and breaking. In John 21, still a large catch of fish and no broken nets. Peter's reaction was radically different. Go away from me, Lord, was his reaction in, in Luke 5. And he jumped out of the boat and ran to the Lord in John 21. So you can draw your own conclusions and enjoy your own meditation on those con comparisons and contrasts. But one precious thought to me, and it's really very simple. In Luke 5, um, the Lord called his Peter and his friends to follow him. And he said, I'll make you fishers of men. That was his promise. And in John 21, we're on the brink of that. They're about to begin whole lives of catching men for God. In John 21, the real business of fishing for men was just about to begin. I love the, the detail and sometimes it's not obvious what it might mean and I, I might get it wrong, but it's a delightful meditation. Why would the Holy Spirit cause John to remember and record there were 153 fish and no broken nets? It's a little bit of a conundrum. The conclusion I came to is they must have counted them. And when it comes to fishes of men, every one counts. I think that's just a, a really precious thing. Why, were, why did he record the nets weren't broken? Well, when it comes to fishes of men, none get lost. If the, the net was broken, then some of the fish would have escaped. And now, it's a simple thing, but maybe there's a little allusion there to eternal security. Fundamental lesson is our call is productive. That's really where we're going from. Um, back to breakfast on the beach, nearly done. I enjoyed the ministry from Stephen Hickling on hope. That was, some of us watched it last Thursday. And that, if you haven't had the opportunity to, please do. It really is a superb ministry. And I've heard lots of ministries on, on hope, but there was a freshness about that ministry, which I think is uh, was really delightful. And um, Stephen was talking about um, faith, hope and love and how they relate to the promises of God. And he said, faith delights in receiving the promises of God. Hope delights in waiting for the promises of God and love delights in seeing the promises of God come to fulfillment. One of our hopes, this was a fresh thought to me, one of our hopes is the prospect of a bodily future. And we've been considering the appearing of the Lord Jesus in his glorious, immortal, resurrected body. It kind of adds another dimension to the thought of a pregnant pause that um, we have something to look forward to, which is dwelling, dwelling in our uh, immortal new perfect bodies one of the things that Stephen was talking about was the idea um, that in heaven as part of our enjoyment of our perfect bodies um, and our transformed bodies is enjoying meals together now isn't that a special thing today um, and something that today is just a, a kind of very a faint shadow of the pleasure that we'll have in eternity to breakfast with the Lord 
and perhaps it'll be more literal than we think. I just think that's a, a precious thing for us to think about. In the meantime, the statement which leapt from the page in my Bible from this section was verse 12. No one dared ask, who are you, Lord? Because they knew it was the Lord. So here you go. Breakfast with the Lord Jesus is the antidote to doubt. When we spend time with him, we know who he is and the doubts flee away. Thank you.